Great. Thank you, Brittany. Such a, such a great image and invitation into uh, the willow tree. So we'll hold on to that as we, as we look at Ephesians 4. Uh, full disclosure, the theme for this morning, Christian unity, frankly, is a bit of a snoozer. Uh, and at least that's what I've kind of thought until the last year or so. And, and then it became an, a topic that I think is extremely pertinent to our cultural moment and kind of flipped to now being really excited. The best part of the morning, I think, will be, uh, or not the morning, but of the sermon, will get to be to hear uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. So really looking forward to getting into that with you this morning. Before we do that, I want to show you a commercial, and I, and I hesitate to do so. I don't like the idea of commercials in church space. That seems just wrong. Uh, and, well, you'll see. You'll see why. We'll talk about it afterwards. This is a Heineken commercial. Uh, it's about four minutes or so. Uh, and uh, take from it what you will. Okay, let's watch. views as the new right. I say that I'm left. Feminism today is man-hating. I would describe myself as a feminist, 100%. I don't believe that climate change exists. We're not taking enough action on climate change. I think it's about time these people got off the high horse and started looking for credible problems that actually exist. It's absolutely critical that trans people have their own voice. That's not right. You can't, you know, you're, you're a man, be a man, or you're a female, be a female. Women do need to remember that we need you to have our children. Could I be friends with someone that says the women's place is in the home? Um. Right, okay, well, I'm an expert at flat packs. If you have any trouble, just watch me. <laughs> so it looks like I've got your instructions here. I think so. Let me help you. Let's have just that bit there. Describe what it is like to be you in five adjectives. Okay, frustrating. Dedicated. Opinionated. Lucky. Ambitious. Offensive. Solemn. I have ups and downs. Strong. I'd want to say attacked. Misunderstood. Name three things you and I have in common. We're both male, we're both confident, and we're both loudly spoken. We know each other better than people who've known each other for ten minutes should. You seem quite ambitious and positive, and you've got this really, um... Got a glow. Do you know what I'm <laughs> saying? Your aura's pretty cool. I'm sensing. Are you uh, for military or something? People have said that, but there is no, really? there is no history. So are you then? Ex. Ex-military? Um, yeah. If you're ex-military, I'm very proud of you already. Well, so. I grew up uh, in a bit of a rough state. I've experienced homelessness. I've known what it's like to have absolutely nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely most grateful just just for life we've only just met but i think you're the sort of person that would listen to me and we'd have a discussion rather than argue yeah you could hang out with man let's go my chance goodness sake you're right mate fitter than a look <laughs> perfect oh yeah there you go 
Because basically, I think we just built a bar. Yeah. OK. Here you are. <laughs> Each take a bottle and place it on its corresponding markings on the bar. Attention. Please now stand to watch a short film. Feminism today is definitely an excuse for misandry, man-hating. If somebody said to me that climate change is destroying the world, then I'd say that is total piffle. So transgender, it is very odd. We're not set up to understand or see things like that. I am a daughter, a wife. I am transgender. I feel like the battle for feminism definitely isn't done. The fight is never going to be over, if I'm honest with you. You now have a choice. You may go, or you can stay and discuss your differences over a beer. <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> well, I'm having a drink. I'm having a drink. Yeah. I want to discuss. Beer. Yeah, beer and discuss. Cheers. At the end of the day, mate. About I've reaching out to people, yeah. And, you know, even if you wanted to convince people about your point, the productive thing to do would be to sit it's down engaged. and have a engage. I've been brought up in a way where everything's black and white, but life isn't black and white. Yeah, I'm just me. Yeah. <laughs> Smash the patriarchy. <laughs> I'll give you my mobile number, you give me yours. Uh -huh. And we'll keep in touch. I'd have to tell my girlfriend that I'll be texting another girl. <laughs> <laughs> she might get upset with that, but I'll have to get round there. <laughs> a couple things, a few things interesting in there. Less interesting to me is the really quick resolution. Cheers, smash the patriarchy. That's pretty fast. Um, so, okay, well, it's a commercial. Less interesting are, you know, Heineken values. Um, and I'm not trying to superimpose Heineken values here, but what's, what's interesting to me is uh, this particular ad, 14 million views, which would indicate there's a hunger for that kind of space, even if it's artificial and coerced and kind of sneaky. That kind of space where difference is revealed, even, even if you didn't know it was going to be. And there's disagreement. There wasn't actually very much, so that wasn't that realistic. We didn't get to see them disagreeing. But then there's a decision. Do you stay in the room or do you leave? That's what's interesting to me. And even more so is, is you know, Heineken doesn't actually mediate that kind of space. Uh, I'm interested more in, uh, well, in Ephesians and about how Christ <laughs> mediates that kind of space and makes th that kind of space happen. And if you were around last week, you'll remember we were going through Ephesians 2 and we saw this, that uh, there's, there's a movement of space from hostile space to open space to sacred space. And that hostile space we looked at as identities being defined by injury. Uh, victimization, relying on actually the other, the perpetrator, the oppressor, to give me identity. To provide me with a sense of what I'm not. And then communities get a for formed around that uh, injury and that ideology, and all ideology works on antagonisms, us versus them, all ideologies are violent. 
And the purpose then is to expose oppression and eventually oppress that oppression and to win and to fight. That's hostile space. But Paul's announcing that in Christ, that hostile space has been defeated. The dividing wall, if you remember, has come down. Uh, it's open space now. And, and so identity isn't found in those antagonisms. It isn't found in those, those labels. It isn't even found in them. And a community is formed around reconciliation. Uh, God reconciling us to himself and us then becoming reconciled to each other. And that's, that's the purpose, reconciliation. Another uh, one of Paul's letters, he puts it this way in Galatians 3. So, in Christ, in this new space, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And it's important to note that what Paul is talking about here and in Ephesians 2, the, the divisions are coming down, but it, this is not about erasing distinctions. So in this rhetoric, Paul is not saying there's no such thing now as a Jew or a Gentile. What he's doing is not erasing distinctions. He's saying in the cross, it's eliminated differentials of power. It's the things that get attached to the distinctions that I'm gonna use to put myself over and against you, right? So the cross of Christ, we could say, it creates open space or level space. It humbles those who live with an illusion of superiority, and it lifts up those who live under the sense of inferiority. Uh, depending which one you are, the cross can sound good news or bad news. Uh, it's level footing everywhere in Christ, and those unequal in power and status, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, ma male or female, are now united in a new community. And, and that's where Paul goes in Ephesians 2. It's not just open space or level space, sacred space. He's saying, all of you misfits, all of you former enemies, uh, through the reconciliation of Jesus, are actually going to become the living architecture where God's presence dwells. And you're going to learn how to be really close because the only way a new temple as living stones are going to get built together means proximity and weight. And, and you're like, I had no idea I'd be close to someone like that. Here we are, bearing weight together. And so identity in the sacred space is not found in them, my enemy. It's not even found in me, in my privilege, or my distinctives. Ultimately, not in my Enneagram. I'll just put that out there. Uh, it's found in Christ, which the Enneagram's supposed to help you do. But my identity is it's about being in Christ. That's Paul's uh, phrase in Ephesians. And so then a new community is formed in Christ to, uh, as Paul says, administer grace to the world. So that's where we've been. And here we are, uh, Ephesians 4. If you'd like to read with me, let's go there together. Uh, this is a real big hinge and turning point in the letter, and we'll see why in a moment. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. We'll start with the first three verses. As a prisoner 
for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this section opens up a hinge. We talked previously there's a hinge in Ephesians 2.11. Up to Ephesians 2.11, it's mostly about the individual, the person, and 2.11 shifts to the communal. If you remember, we talked about that shift, individual to communal. Now, here in in 4, there's a shift. uh, Some people say it's a shift from doctrine to ethics, or uh, it's, it's a shift from the doctrinal to the practical. And so now what Paul's gonna do, he spent three chapters, this glorious painting of, of God's grace. Now he's gonna start saying, this is how we live in light of this. He's actually gonna make a claim about what you and I do with our day to day. He's making a claim on the how you go about your life. So he's saying, you've received a massive calling to put on display the manifold, multi-sided character of God by being a manifold, multi-sided community of misfits and outsiders. The two have now become one. You are the church, and by definition, you are a fellowship of difference. And it's like, oh, yeah, whatever your chest bump is or fist thing or whatever, maybe you send gifts when you're excited, however you show enthusiasm, that's happening at this point. Yes, yes, yes. And it was so amazing last week when we had that cardboard wall of boxes to see Elijah fly through the air and and cascade the boxes down. And then it was awesome to see Andrew dancing and the kids following Andrew and we're dancing on the, the old walls of division. And I was so thankful Primrose didn't crack her head. I was just, it was awesome, but I just didn't want to hurt herself. It was, it was like, yes, the walls of division have come down. It's exciting. Last Sunday, it was exciting. Yes, yes, yes. But then what happens? Like the walls come down, and then you see your enemy. You're like, oh, the other, my neighbor, you. Henry Nouwen says, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was so excited for a brief moment of the walls coming down, but the walls coming down now means we occupy the same space, and it's level space, and it's open. And God's intention is that it becomes sacred space around Christ. I'm Canadian. I love diversity, just not your kind of diversity. Hmm. I love different, just not that kind of different. I have another full disclosure here. The last however long Artisan is, eight years old. So I've been in this eight years. And early on, I realized I I got into church planting mostly out of victimization and wounding. Hurt by the church, 
My biggest problem has always been other Christians. My love for the church is just barely higher than my hatred for toxic religion. And so, uh, as a church planter, I've projected on this church the desire to be different. We're going to do it different. We're not going to make the same mistakes as the church. We're not going to hurt people like the churches that have hurt me. And a couple years in, my ego went to school. And I realized that's just the old hostile space. That's the, that's the game of antagonism. Lance, you think there's a right and a wrong kind of Christian. Right? Like, I've, I'm totally fine with Christians who drive Priuses. You know, SUVs. Hmm. <laughs> you know? It's that kind of different you're confronted with, where the person that you may be reacting against, the person that you're defining yourself is like, that was the old me. You've got an old me, a, a person who was just like your old belief system, who talked like you did in youth group, or whatever you think the immature old way that you've grown out of and, and you've shed, they're in community with you. I tell you, that drives me crazy. I don't want to be confronted with that. I don't want to face me. I don't know what your different is that you have a hard time dealing with. I've been reading a fantastic book. I want to put it on the screen here just so you can... I commend this to you, Disunity in Christ and Covering the Hidden Forces that Keep Us Apart. Christina now is at Duke uh, Center for Reconciliation. And so if you care about issues like privilege and race and this whole conversation we've been having, I'd commend uh, this book to you. It's very accessible. It's not jargony or too technical. Um, Christina writes, Christians are so good, sadly, at erecting divisions that we don't stop at the major ones like race, ethnicity, class, and gender. We also create divisions within divisions. Really good at this. Really good. Why? Because, um, did I skip a slide about difference? Yeah, let's go back to that one. Because this is, I think, the normal course of things. So I see, the walls come down, I see difference, I see someone's different than me. That usually is going to lead to disagreement, right? Which is uncomfortable. And usually disagreement leads back into differential. I'm going to win. I'm going to power over, which then leads back to division. And so if, if that's where it always seems to go, then the most threatening thing is difference and especially disagreement. And so I got to guard against that and I got to start building up walls. They're just going to be tighter this time. And, 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 and they're going to be, we're going to get rid of difference. We'll have more sameness inside and that way we won't have any more of that. <laughs> It's not just the church who has a hard time with difference and disagreement. We as a people in this moment do not know how to disagree. <laughs> Which is why something as trivial as a hashtag is confess your unpopular opinion is so interesting. Where people, again, because we're craving space, like the Heineken commercial, we're craving space for difference and disagreement. It can even feel risky to put something out there uh, on social media. So here are some examples. Sourdough bread is excessively chewy, <laughs> overpriced, underflavored, pretentious, airy, and thoroughly annoying. <laughs> Anyone offended? You're, this morning you are offended. 
Yeah. Yeah, that is offensive. Okay. Uh, I do not find Ryan Gosling attractive at all. Next. <laughs> iPhones are overpriced and serve to lock people into Apple's expensive ecosystem of music fi and file sharing, etc. <laughs> Next. Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, and the Beatles are overrated. <laughs> See, that one is really offensive because the three of them lumped together. <laughs> There's no way T-Swift should be, you know, lumped in. So, uh, uh, next, next one. U2 song, Sherry, this is for you. U2 songs are flat and all round relatively the same. The only good record was Joshua Tree. <laughs> I think there's one more. <laughs> also, there are stupid questions. <laughs> you know, it might be, it could be a good uh, exercise today over, over lunch. If you go up for lunch, with someone else. You could even do this with yourself, I guess, go back and forth, but <laughs> confess your unpopular opinion. Take a few risks and float out some difference there and, and see what happens when you disagree. But th so this is, this is, these are small potatoes, right? Uh, c but in Ephesians 4, we get to this point where Paul is, is like, by the way, all of this grace stuff that I've been on about you're actually gonna have to live it. Grace isn't an idea, but it's a practice in the midst of difference and disagreement. One author says the epidemic in Christianity is not Christians trying to earn their salvation through loving other people hard enough. It's Christians thinking that believing the right things about God's grace is an adequate substitute for actually being God's grace in the world. That's the breakdown that Paul's beginning now, and we're gonna see in the couple weeks as we get into ethics, that's the breakdown that he's addressing. It's not just what you believe, it's how you believe. So, he's saying walk in a worthy manner, and then he says, let me clarify that. Verse two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I mean, our moment is lacking so much civility and decency, let alone those things. Those almost are like rare unicorns in our time. Civility would be, would be awesome to see. I saw some online, and I had to, I had to take a screenshot of it because you rarely ever see th this. Trust me, this exists. Look at this. Okay, so uh, Senator Cory Booker, his, his response is to the tweet below, just full-on trolling. You'll never be president, Cory Booker. Like, just pointless, just throwing that out there, okay? <laughs> Listen to Senator Booker's response, and that is okay. Life is about purpose, not position. I am proud to serve. May both you and I be so busy in serving others that we have little time to criticize others. All the best to you. Like, whoa! <laughs> wow! What a clinic. Verse three, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I was hoping that by doing a deep dive, a word study in unity, that, that this would help me understand unity more because as I said, unity can be a bit of a snoozer or like, are we just talking about getting along? 
uh, you know, the kumbaya kind of thing. What, what is unity? Found the definition, and the, the word means oneness or undivided, which helps somewhat. It means bringing together separate parts into a whole, so that relates to reconciliation. It means oneness, oneness. And we see a little bit later in this passage how uh, Paul frames this oneness. Look at verse four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now there's some uh, theologians who think what Paul's doing here is uh, giving a list that the Ephesians would have been aware of. Uh, People would have already known this list. Um, regardless, this is a list of things where very different people, there's, there's other lists of all the reasons we shouldn't go together. Paul's saying, here's your list. Find common ground here. And again, this, this is a list, as we looked at yesterday, for people who have wildly different ethnic backgrounds, very different historic and cultural differences in that place, he's saying, I want to give you a list. Focus here. There's a spiritual unity that then creates a relational unity. And so this is Paul's first thing. Ethics class is starting in, in uh, chapter 4. Paul's going to start making claims on how we live. And he's like, the first thing, the very first thing, we've got to understand, is unity. And it's hard for us to grasp that that's all that important, particularly because we are people, if you've been in the church, we are people who live on the other side of the Reformation. And being on the other side of the Reformation means having lots of difference and disagreement and then just keep dividing and splintering and on and on and on. And so it's hard for us to get this as a priority, you know, I certainly wasn't taught this in seminary. It was like if you start a church, you know, you got to have some preaching, trying to have good worship, you know, plenty of parking, get a kids program going, get to unity if you ever can. You know, but Paul's saying this is number one. So we live on the other side of the Re- Reformation and we have severely bought into the sin of the Reformation. What is that? Well, you, if you've been around church, you know how this works. You're in church, and you love it. You do love it. And after a while, you start to realize, though, that there are people in your congregation that are different, and not only different, that disagree with you and how you read the Bible. So first, uh, we may disagree on things like how to do the Lord's Supper. Do you dip? Do you, do you, or you must drink out of the chalice. You don't drink out of the chalice. I'm out. That is it. We split. Then we realize that we don't actually sit, like singing the same kind of music. You know, hymns or Hillsong. Uh, yeah, don't like the music here. Split. Then people start talking about the rise of postmodernism. Split. See, I'm touching buttons for Julia right now. And then... <laughs> I could only do that with you. I could only do that with you. <laughs> And, and then, so we split after that, and then, and then the decorating committee. 
the decorating committee, they chose mauve. They chose, they chose mauve for the carpet in the sanctuary. And then over the years, we realized there's way more we don't agree on, like topics of baptism, the return of Christ, hell, alcohol, birth control, divorce and remarriage, spiritual gifts, and so we split off and we split off again. And, and maybe even the word for some of us, like the word split sounds too confrontational. Like, I would never split. You would drift. <laughs> and, and, you know, in our eight years of artisan, that's how it works. There hasn't been a split. It's just drifts. It's just the slow fade. See ya. So instead of split, we drift and, until it's down just to me and someone else. And then we find something that we disagree about. And then it's just me. And then I realize I don't always agree with myself. And so I'm going to have to take a sword and for the sake of orthodoxy, cut clean down the middle. So the point is division kills and we're so used to it. And we actually rebrand division as orthodoxy and faithfulness. I'm out of here. No longer Bible believing. Mm. So perhaps a good place for the church, especially now, would be to start confronting the sin of the Reformation. And to be clear, I'm not saying that the Reformation was a sin, rather that the sin that most snuck in with the Reformation was the sin of disunity. Like a Trojan horse just gets a free pass. And so for the first time, the keys of the kingdom are handed over to individual Christians, which brought a lot of good fruit but also an idolatry for preference and the impulse towards division. There's difference, there's disagreement, I'm out, cut off. So where is unity hardest for this tradition, for the church? Around theology, around doctrine, around beliefs? Because if I ever have a right to be mean, it's over the word of God. If I ever have a right to be cruel and to teeter a little bit on the side of oppression and to use the means of power, it's because you're disagreeing with the truth. If ever it's okay to exclude, it is for those who do not believe what I believe. And so we see unity is really hard if this is your tradition, if church is your tradition, especially if you've been around the block, you've, you've been around for a few years. Well, now that we're properly discouraged, we've reached the bottom <laughs> of the sermon and all sermons are supposed to be U-shaped, so we're somewhere down in here. And we're going to start ascending by grace. So where do we go? Well, I think it's in the text which we've already noted. Paul's, again, if it's a list or if it's just like really great poetry that has rhythm. One, 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 one. Uh, I got this from a friend uh, in Hamilton, and they call it the one, two, threes. This is, a, this is a way of holding theology, or a, it's how you believe. I'm going to briefly sketch this. There'll be more to come in the other weeks. We've got a, a, 
a document on this and how are we gonna practice the one, two, threes? Very quickly, I'm gonna sketch this for you. So hang, hang on here. This is a little more teaching than preaching, but hang on. So the one, two, threes, what does that mean? I think this is an exciting way forward of how to hold theology. And we may be different and you may disagree about this and that's okay. Okay, so here we go. Knowing that, uh, hopefully you might disagree some, and we can talk. One, two, three. So the first is the one. What's the one? The one is our core convictions. The ones are the part of our faith that are absolutely core. They're central. They don't move. The ones, we, they come out of Scripture, God's, uh, God-breathed library that tells us the story we're part of. And what we're looking for with the ones is we're looking for markers of faith that root us, the ancient way of following Jesus. We're looking for the beliefs that Christians across time and space have affirmed as the true way. You know, if only there was something that was written then about the history of the church that we could find. Well, there is. Things like the Apostles' Creed. You know, almost 2,000 years old, an ancient church document that Christians have used uh, to root themselves in the faith. This is central. Maybe, maybe one Sunday we'll, we'll say the Apostles' Creed together. and We'll revisit that. We won't do that now for time's sake. But let's say that the Apostles' Creed, we make that our one. Now, not being linear at all, let's go to three. Our three are our peripheral convictions. And the threes, for all of us, are things that good, Jesus-following, Bible-honoring Christians will disagree about. And as you imagine, the list is long, right? The threes include beliefs like, say, the proper mode of, of baptism. There was a time in church history just about over 500 years ago, that the tradition that this church is part of, the Anabaptist tradition, were getting killed by the dominant church position because they held a different view on baptism. Not there anymore. But there is a disagreement about baptism and, how, and the Holy Spirit and the role of women in church and the role of men in church and how exactly the universe was created Birth control, pacifism, whether a Christian can serve in the military, how much money a Christian can make, whether Christians can have retirement funds, styles of prayer, language, contemplative prayer. What is this New Age mysticism? The rapture, resurrection, miracles, tattoos, yoga pants. There are, there are a lot of threes, and so we can joke about the threes. Yoga pants isn't, well, maybe that is for some. <laughs> we can joke about the threes, but actually, it's not to say the threes don't matter, because they, they do a lot. But unlike the ones, these are theological questions that are, may either not be as explicitly clear in Scripture or may be interpreted in a number of ways. And so the fact that when we come together with a sincere commitment to our faith and to our Scriptures, we will disagree on important issues. And we must have the freedom and the space to, in Christ, wrestle with one another on Scripture And we're given that freedom because the peripherals, the threes, are not the core. 
even if they feel really crucial at the time. All denominations split over threes. It's, that's an overstatement, but I think it's 98% true. That's, that's where the splits happen, over three. So in order to be united, we need to learn how to disagree in love and how to find a deeper unity and how to fight fair. Because we will fight. We will fight like a family. And yes, sometimes we'll, people will believe things that we think are just crazy. And every uncle, every family has a crazy uncle. And they're still at the table at Thanksgiving. So separating our ones from our threes allows difference and disagreement to gather at the table and it creates space for learning and listening and prayer and mutual transformation. So that's one and three. Two is our unity as a church. Two is our unity. I want to say something that may be provocative this morning. And that is, I, this is me, I believe that the unity of Christ's church is more important than where we land on our threes. We commit to being united together as a family, especially when we disagree with one another. So in essence, I learn to set aside a three or to hold a three loosely in order to pick up a two. And the two allows us to hold our belief Hear this, this is not tolerance. This is not you know, watering things down or taking the edges off your belief. It's holding your belief with conviction. And it's speaking it. And it's confronting one another. But it's doing it in a way where it says at the end of the day, we're family. I am so mad at you, but we're family. The one, two, threes make unity not an optional extra if we can get there, but essential. Now, if you think that's an overstatement, let's hear Jesus really briefly here. You may know this prayer. This is John 17. We said, for Paul, the first thing he wanted to get across. Here's Jesus, the last thing he wants to get across and wants to make known. This is his prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. He's been praying for his current disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be any, any of those of us who say I'm a follower of Jesus. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus is rooting unity in the triune life of God, in the relationships that exist in the three-in-one God, which is mysterious. But at the very least, the Trinity uh, means persons in relationship who are not the same, distinct and diverse. Relationships that are marked by reciprocity and respect. And relationship, the whole mode, is self-giving love, not dominance. So Christian unity is based in the Godhead. The second thing Jesus says is he's spending all this time on unity. He's interceding for them. Why? He's praying 
that we will be one in order that people who are watching the church's shared life may go, oh, that's what God's like, full of self-giving love and reciprocity and respect, different yet united. Oh, wow. So Paul then says, make every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity. That word, that phrase, make every effort, it's an athletic one. Uh, It means to do one's best. It means elbow grease. It means disproportionate effort. I was talking to a friend uh, who was telling me about lifting weights and the importance of getting to failure. That was his phrase. He says, you grow strength uh, by getting to failure. And so you do shorter reps, get to failure, and that's how you build strength. Make every effort. Go so far in making unity that you're like, I'm to failure. I have given all I have. I mean, the disciples, they wanted to quantify with Jesus the amount of effort uh, one should go to when it comes to forgiving someone. And, and Peter makes the suggestion, which I'm sure in his mind, he's like, I'm just going to throw this out there as like a really high number. Just see what he says. Jesus wondering if we should forgive like seven times. Probably thinking Jesus is going to be impressed by like that kind of compassion. <laughs> and Jesus answers like, no, 70 times seven. I mean, have you forgiven someone? Like, have you done that? Forgiven someone for the same thing seven times? That's costly. Make every effort. Put out of your mind that this is going to be easy. That being part of the church with diversity, difference, and disagreement, put out of your mind that you will always like it. Or that it will not cost you. Or that there will not be suffering. Make every effort to mend the divide, to hold the tension, to stay in the room, to resist the fight or flight that is lighting up your amygdala in this moment. Instead, make every effort. Make every effort. Not projecting the dream of unity onto like the church universal, like I sure hope someday Protestants and Catholics could get along, or I'm being ecumenical because I'm reading St. Teresa of Avila, or stuff like that. Unity in the stuff here with me, with us. Can these people move from hostile space into open space and by grace be built into sacred space? Can these particular divisions that live in this particular congregation, can those tensions hold? I don't care if it happens anywhere else, frankly. I want to know if it can hold here. Can peace happen in artisan church? Because as we risk difference being exposed and disagreement being voiced, the temptation will be, I'm out, or split, or whatever tactics. Because we assume it's going to go this way, different. That's going to go to disagreement. That'll go to a differential of power, and that will go to division. But I think the good news is this. It doesn't have to go that way. It could go different to disagreement to Davis Miles. I was trying to find a D word. (laughs) And what I mean by this, and I think this is good news. This is Miles here. 
a rare picture of him smiling. <laughs> he said this, music is the space between the notes. It's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. Or one other quote, just because I want to say his name, Arthur Schnabel. The, <laughs> the, notes, the notes I handle no better than many pianists, but the pauses between the notes, ah, that is where the art resides. Music is notes plus space, and the space is, of course, how the notes are held. If it's all note, it's not music. The space is just as important. Miles would say it's more important. But the space is just as important as the notes that are played because the spates hold the notes and the space gives the notes meaning and they affect how the notes are heard. Like, that's great, I'm not a musician. What are we talking about? We, church, are often fixated with notes and notation and doctrine Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. That if we get the notes right, then we're going to get the music. When there's little thought given to the space around the beliefs and how those beliefs are held and how those beliefs so often sound like ego and noise. Do you see what Paul is doing here? The beginning of the ethics section. He's like, there's going to be a temptation to use your beliefs and to slide into differentials. Focus not just on the notes, but on the spaces. Focus not just on what you believe, but how you believe, which is important distinction to make because you can hold a, a good belief in a wrong way. And you can be right and go about being right in a wrong way, in a way that is destructive. And we've witnessed enough of this in history, particularly in the church where people have used orthodox belief to hurt and marginalize others. So how you hold your belief is just as important as what you believe. And I wonder if in our, if our moment it may be even more important. Just to push it there a little more with overstatement. Music is notes and space. Unity is belief and stuff like this. Be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Ours in church, we get to play the music in our time. The call is not to let go of conviction, but to move deeper into it. And to have a community where that difference and disagreement is held and we stay in the room. And the only reason we can stay in the room is because there's a willow tree in the midst. And the willow tree is the one providing the circle and the shade and the space. You invited us to use it, so we're going to use it. Uh, that the, it doesn't work without the willow tree. It do, this does not work without the chief cornerstone, Jesus. And so we're not actually invited to Davis Miles. I just, Jesus is Jay, you get it. But Christ, the cornerstone, he bears the weight. He holds the tension. He makes unity in the midst of deep difference and disagreement even possible. Totally impossible. This new community, totally impossible apart from Christ. So brief invitation would be pay attention this week to difference and disagreement. Notice your own 
reaction to that? When you, when you start feeling those differences emerge, where do you go? Consider the one, two, threes as a way of doing theology. You may have a better iteration than what I just gave you, so let me know. But consider that. What does it mean to hold on to the ones, to see your threes aren't actually ones, and above all else, to keep a hold on the two, unity. Another invitation would be, and I would like to make this mandatory, would be to listen to Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. And I'm serious. Listen to it and listen for notes plus space. Start attending to space. And then you can do that in conversations. You ever noticed when someone's feeling pressured or coerced or like pounced on, what do they often say? Just give me some space. So pay attention to notes and space. Thirdly, what, what tension, what divide are you called to? My youngest son told me this week, he says, I was praying for you this morning. I said, oh, that's nice. He's five. He said, what were you praying for me? He says, that you wouldn't get caught. Hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, buddy, caught, like caught doing what? He says, no, caught, caught by the bad guys. Oh, so like when I leave house that I wouldn't be caught by bad guys, yeah. And he says, yeah, and I was praying that uh, you would be a peacemaker. He said, okay. I think that's a good prayer. Let us not get caught in the hostile space and antagonisms and defending walls that Jesus has brought down and let us become peacemakers, uh, the particular divisions we're called to. So here we are, willow trees at the center, the tables at the center. The tension does not hold apart from Christ. So we come to this table, met by him like his original disciples, Lots of difference in that room. Full betrayer. Judas is still in the room. Peter is going to betray later. And yet they're around the table. So this table is for those who need it. Let's remind ourselves as we come. uh, Let's go to the words of institution. Next, Next one. There we go. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.